Gitin, Perkei, Mishnah Dalad, 5-4. The Mishnah continues with two more tikkunim that were established because of tikkun olam. Uh, the first topic of the two in our Mishnah is talking about the Apitropus. Apitropus is essentially a, a guardian, like a legal guardian, um, who's taking care of orphans. And a person can become an Apitropus in one of three ways, really. Either A, the children themselves somehow like ingratiate themselves to this adopted father, if you will, who takes care of them. Or B, prior to their father dying, he could ask someone to take the responsibility for being the Apitropus for the child. Or C, failing the first two, the courts would apport, would appoint a legal guardian, an Apitropus, to take care of the children. Now, they might need various things. The point, focal point of our mission here is um, the tithing of their produce. So these kids inherit an estate. Their you know, wheat is growing in the, in the backyard. They need the wheat to live. So the question is, who will tithe the wheat? Now, this is actually a thorny issue, um, halakhli, because there's only two ways a person can be able to tithe the produce, to be authorized halakhli to tithe produce. Either A, if he is the bialim, he owns the produce, um, or B, he's been appointed as the shaliach by the owner. Now, neither, neither of those two possibilities are available to the orphans here, because since the orphans are children, they're minors, they themselves are simply unable to tie their produce themselves. This is in the first mission in Trumos, that a minor simply is not able to tie the produce. So that would leave option B, which is appointing a shaliach to do so. The problem is that the children, being minors, are unable halakhli to appoint a shaliach, an agent to act on their behalf, simply not a legal possibility. And therefore, so to speak, no one can do it. So our Mishnah's first point here is that there's a takana, that the apitropus, the garden of these children, is authorized to take trumas and maestras on their behalf. Um, the mechanism how that could work is through this power of the bezin to do hefker, bezin, hefker, to render something ownerless. So basically, they're taking the assets of the children while they're still minors and giving it to the apitropus to make it his so that he can tithe it for them. So um, that will be applicable so long as the children are, are minors. So here the Mishnah says, Yisomim, if you have orphans, Shisamchu Eitzel Bal Habayis, that somehow became dependent upon this other man, they ingratiated themselves to him, and he's supporting them, he's taking care of them. So then um, that would be um, uh, a possibility. Or, oh, Shemina Lehen Aviyan Apitropos, or alternatively, if the father formally appointed someone prior to his death to be their apitropus, to be their legal guardian. In both those cases, it's the legal responsibility now of this apitropus to um, do the tithing for these orphans so that they can eat properly tithed produce. That's a requirement all to itself, and that's a dindarabanan, um, a takana, so that the children can eat tithed produce, as should be the case, as I explained. Now, Later on, the children will, will grow up, you know, they'll become, you know, bar mitzvah, um, at which point the apitropus is no longer, services are no longer required. However, there's a concern that maybe the apitropus, while he had the ability to have access to the children's, you know, assets, that he perhaps embezzled something he, or some other kind of malfeasance. And therefore, there's going to be a requirement in certain circumstances that the apitropus should take a formal shvua. To take a to swear in Bezdin that he didn't take what wasn't entitled he was entitled to take, so the mission here says Apitropus sheminahu aviyasomim yishava. The Tanakhama says that if the Apitropus is someone who was appointed by um, the father of the orphans prior to his death, so that Apitropus is required to swear in court. 
Whereas Minahu Bezdin, if the Apitropos had been appointed by the Bezdin, the courts appointed this person to be the legal guardian of these children after the death of their father, then Lo Yishava, then he's not required to swear. The rationale is as follows. We're concerned that the requirement to take a shvu and swear in court later on would be a very strong disincentive and a person would not be agreeable to take on the responsibility of being an epitropus if um, in exchange for his uh, his kindness of taking care of the kids he's forced to take a shvu and bezin because as we saw previously and we'll see many times in the future um, people are simply terrified of taking shvu so that would be a strong reason not to do it so the thought is According to the Tanakama, if anyways the father is able to convince someone to act as his apitropus for his children, that's because that person somehow must owe the father a favor, he must be his friend and so on, and therefore he won't be dissuaded simply by taking a shvua, and therefore we make him take a shvua to make sure that no one's concerned that there was some sort of inappropriate, you know, financial dealings going on um, while he had access to the kid's funds. Whereas when it comes to a court-appointed apitropus here, where essentially the court's asking someone to do you know, a big favorite these children and become like the Leo guardian, which is very nice of the the Apitropos to agree to do so. Uh, but uh, we're concerned that if he's, you know, going to be required to swear at the end, he'd said rather just not do it. And therefore the children won't have an Apitropos and we need people to volunteer to be legal guardians for orphans. And therefore we don't want to chase people away. And therefore we don't require um, the court appointed Apitropos to take the Shavua. Says the mission, however, Abishol Omer Chilof HaDavarim, Abishal says, switch it around. He says, that it's the other way around. He says, when it comes to the father appointing someone before he dies, so there, you know, the father's asking for a big favor, that when he's gone, that some other person will take care of his kids. And um, that's ideal, because the father presumably has the kid's best interest at heart. He can know who the best epitropus is, and so on and so forth. And therefore, we don't want to chase any potential epitropus him away, let the father sort out the affairs and for his children before he dies, and not have the impediment of the person saying, well, I don't want to do it because of the, the shvua. Whereas the court appointed Apitropus, so this person essentially is getting a you know a big stamp of approval from the courts that this is a person, the kind of person you can trust to you know administer the affairs of children, who you know he's a very reliable person, and that of course um, confers a great deal of prestige on this uh, court appointed trust uh, Apitropus, you know, guardian, and um, you know that that's that's great for this person, his reputation, and so on. And that being the case, he is going to be very agreeable to be the guy who can claim I'm the guy the courts trusted to be the epitropus, and therefore he will not be dissuaded um, necessarily from taking the position just because he has to take a shvu at the end. Um, to the contrary, that would sort of like endorse his his uh, uprightness and to show that he really is a, a great guy, and that would confirm lots of prestige. And therefore, Abishol says no one's going to turn down the job of being a court-appointed epitropus just because they have to take a shvu at the end, and therefore switch the switch the opinions around, and that's the halachas like Abba Shol, so indeed that's how it goes. The court-appointed Apitropos has to take a shvua, whereas the father-appointed one does not. It's actually Machlokas Roshonim, between the Rosh and the Rajba, what's with um, a person who the children themselves sort of find as their, you know, um, daddy warbucks to take care of them, if that person must take a shvua or not. Okay, so that's um, topic number one of the mission. Now, a totally different topic, totally unrelated, it's another um, tikkun for tikkun olam, but not related to the previous point. And this is on the topic of hezek she'eno nikar, which means damages that are not observable. That means we're talking about when uh, Reuven damages Shimon's property, but the damage to Shimon's property is simply, um, it's not a physical damage. So, you know, hypothetically, you know, if, if, if it's, you know, what kind of damage is it? It's sort of halachic damage. It's legal damage. Um, so if the person didn't care about halacha, let's say if, you know, 
Shimon was not even Jewish and wouldn't care about Allah, so then no damage done at all. So, according to Torah law, if the damage is not a physical change in the object, a physical damage, so then one is not obligated to pay for such damage, even though there might be a great financial loss incurred by the by the victim of that damage. So while the Torah doesn't require compensation for Hezek, Shein, or Nikar, here we're going to see the mission will say that the rabbi said if a, the person who did the damaging, the perpetrator, if he was malicious, he was willfully intending to cause damage, so then he is required to make restitution. That's rabbinic in nature, but that's the point here. If his damage was accidental, it was a show gig, so then we actually won't make him pay. So here the mission says inside, Hamatama v'hamadama v'hamanasech, I'll explain all three separately, but the point is these are all kinds of ways which you could damage someone's property without um, a physical change. So then shogig putter, if the damage was done on accident, so then putter, the person who did the damaging, doesn't have to pay and make restitution. Whereas Bamezid Chayev, um, if he was um, intentional in damaging his friend, so then he'll have to pay. So what's the case? So let's just think that, you know, Reuven's doing damaging Shimon's property. Let's say Shimon has, you know, a, a, a bottle of wine or a barrel of wine, or a vat of wine, a whole crop of wine. It doesn't make a difference. The point is that if he is madama menasech, excuse me, matama madama or menasech, so then making the wine now worth less legally, he would have to pay, Reuven would have to pay if he did that damage on purpose. What are the three examples? Matama means to make it tummy. So that means, you know, that let's say, you know, uh, Reuven was a was a zav, and a, a zav who just picks up a bottle of wine inside the bottle, makes it tummy, and if the bottle, let's say, were truma wine is worth less to a Kohen, even if it's not truma wine, no one wants to have tummy wine around. Some people are strict to eat their chulin, betahara, they want to keep everything to be totally tall when they eat it. And even other people, listen, tummy wine is like a recipe for disaster because it spreads tummy everywhere it goes. Um, so therefore, no one wants to have tummy wine. Therefore, it's wor- tummy wine is worth less than tahor wine. So the point is, if Reuven the Zav picked up Shimon's bottle of wine, making it Tameh, and therefore worth less, of course, if Shimon weren't Jewish, he wouldn't care a hoot if Reuven picked it up or not. Makes no difference. There's no physical change to the wine, but there's a halachic change. So therefore, if Reuven did it on purpose, he was bemazed, meaning, and again, mazed here doesn't mean he lifted the bottle on purpose or he acted purposefully. It means that his action was malicious. He intended to cause damage to Shimon, so then he'll have to pay. But if it was an accident, he didn't know he was causing damage. Either he lifted the bottle um, inadvertently, or even if he did it on purpose, but he didn't know that he's going to make a tummy. He didn't know he was a zav, or he didn't know it's going to make it convey to him by lifting it, and so on. So then, could be potter. The second case is medame. Medame is a mix is when you create a mixture of truma and chulin together. Normally. Um, there are different, I don't get into the technicalities here about tarovus, but the, but when you have mixtures, so then at some point um, the the forbidden part becomes annulled in the in the larger mixture. Um, the standard for that is 100, loosely speaking, it's, you need to have like more than 99 times of true of chulin to truma. So that means if you have a mixture of one part truma to 99 parts chulin, the whole mixture is forbidden. That's a higher standard, okay? And that's called a Madama mixture. So the point here is that if, let's say, um, Reuven spilt a bit of Truma wine into Shimon's wine, and it's there's not, I'll call it a hundred times against, it, that's, I'm going to get the technicalities of that, so there's a Machlokas, it doesn't matter right now, um, of, to, of Chulin to Truma. So then the whole thing becomes a Madama mixture, and therefore a non-Kohen may not eat the drink the wine anymore, certainly making it worth a lot less. 
So the point is that it's Hezek Shen Nicker because the wine looks the same, but it, now it's not worth as much. And the last case is a menasech. Menasech here um, literally means like pour as a libation to an idol. The truth is that Jews are not suspected of pouring wine libations to idols. Um, so the point here is that, you know, um, Reuven um, somehow managed to splash a drop of of Yain Nesech, this wine that had been poured to libation or rabbinically forbidden wine, whatever it is, into... Um, into the mixture of Shimon's wine. And when it comes to Yain Nesach, forbidden wine like that, for wine libations, it's forbidden in any amount. It's never bottled. Therefore, even if one drop gets in, all the wine becomes forbidden, halachically. Uh, and therefore, the point is, although it's Hesek Shinnon Nicker, you can't see anything change in the wine, just one tiny drop of this forbidden wine that got mixed into it, the whole thing becomes forbidden. And if Reuven did it on purpose, he has to pay Shimon for the value of his loss. Okay, so that's those examples. Um, now, the mission has one more example, a different kind of example about Hezek Shin and Nikar, which is Hakohanim Shepiglu Bemikdash Mazid Nechayavin. If a Kohen who's doing an Avoda for a Korban, and if he's during one of the four essential Avodos, the activities that go on, the essential activities that go with the offering of a sacrifice, animal sacrifice, which is the Shechita, the slaughtering, or the Kabbalah, the receiving the blood, or the Holacha, the bringing of the blood to the altar, or the Zerika, the application of the blood on the altar, if in any of those four steps he thinks that he's going to either eat the meat of this Korban or offer, like burn into smoke the offering on the Mizbeach at a, be, later than the prescribed time by the Torah, that's called to be mifagel, to make it piggle. It's a word all to itself, I mean, and it makes the korban totally forbidden. It's invalidated, you can't eat it, you can't offer it, nothing. So just the mere thought of that. Um, that's called chutz lezmano, to think to either eat or offer the korban outside of its proper time. That's called, that's piggle. So the point of permission here is that if a Kohen has such a thought, rendering the offering invalid, so if he did that thought, but made it on purpose, so then Chayavan, he's obligated to make restitution and pay the Bailam, the owner of this offering, um, back for his lost Corbin. A couple points on that. Um, the first is, it's not just about Pigol, meaning Chutzle Zmano thoughts. There are other kinds of things, like if the Kohen, for example, would think Chutzle Makomo thoughts, he would think he's going to eat the offering or offer it outside of the prescribed place. Like, for example, you have to eat the offering either in the walls of Jerusalem, or sometimes in the Chatzer, like in the walls of the of the uh, the Zara itself, the Temple Courtyard, whatever it is, if he thinks he's taking his meat back with him to you know to home in Haifa, just that thought would be enough to render the whole thing forbidden. Um, it's not called pigle; it's something else. But the point is, similarly, it'd make the render the offering invalid. And if he did that on purpose, but amazing, he'd have to pay the damages that he caused um, the owner of the offering. And that's true whether or not, all these cases are true, whether or not um, the owner has to bring another korban. There's two kinds of korbanos. Sometimes it's called a nadava, sometimes it's called a neder. Um, a neder is an obligation on the person, so he'd have to, if his offering were invalidated, he'd have to bring a new one. And the kohen reimbursing him for the loss, he would have to go to purchase a new animal. But even if the animal was a nadava, uh, which means that it was a voluntary he, the commitment was on the animal itself, and therefore there's no achrayut, there's no responsibility of the owner to bring another one. So the owner, you know, said little Bessie, the, sh- the cow was going to be a be an ola. He brings Bessie. The Cohen is mifagelet. He, he ruins it f- on purpose. So we're saying the Cohen has to reimburse the owner for the cost of Bessie. Um, but since the obligation was just that Bessie should be consecrated, not another animal, 
the owner of Bessie can pocket the money and not bring another Corbin. He can just, you know, get his money back, essentially, if he so chooses. So those are the two Takanas here. The second Takana is the Takana of Hezek Shner If you do Bamezid, you have to reimburse the damages that you cause. Midir Rabban and Mitpnei Tikkun Olam.